The What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and the host of the What to Know podcast show. And I am here today talking to the CEO and Director of Scientific Affairs of the Cancer Research Institute, otherwise known as CRI. Um, I'm talking with Jill O'Donnell-Tormey. Welcome, Jill. Hi, thanks very much for having me. Well, I am glad we get to do this. Um, this is this is going to be fun, and it's also nice because even though we're doing it over the phone, uh, you and I had a chance to meet each other last year during J.P. Morgan, and so... Uh, and then we're also doing this because you have a, a wonderful event coming up soon, the Awards Gala, that we'll talk a little bit about during the show. Um, I wanted to start with a question about Cancer Research Institute. I know probably a lot of folks have heard about it. Um, it is positioned as the global leader in supporting and coordinating research aimed at harnessing the immune system's power to conquer all cancers, which um, many of us have been touched with this horrible disease. Talk a little bit more about what that means, and, and you know, we'll get into, you've been there for a while, um, you sort of lived and breathed this, but you know, tell us more about uh, what that, that mission sounds like. Sure. So I think, you know, it, as you mentioned, it is the Cancer Research Institute's 65th anniversary. And so since 1953, we've kind of had this singular mission, which was how do we save more lives by fueling the discovery and development of a power, powerful immunotherapies for all types of cancer. And so back in 1953, and even up until I'd say 15 years ago, that was an aspirational goal that probably not many people believed was possible, that you could actually harness your immune system's ability to keep you protected from stuff like infectious agents and such, and actually use it as a treatment for cancer. And I think we have had this persistent and singular mission, uh, and back in the day, the only organization that I think was supporting really the cutting-edge research. So there was a small cadre of scientists around the world that did believe that the immune system could be harnessed as a treatment for cancer. But it took a long road, and I think CRI had a, a long vision in that you needed first to understand how the immune system really worked and functioned, which back in 1953 we didn't know. And thanks to some support of some very fundamental basic immunology, we have been proud to say that we've supported kind of the building blocks that are today is the foundation upon which these powerful immunotherapies that have now been approved by the FDA to, uh, to treat cancer, and that some of them are working almost miraculously in some cancers. So so I think in the last, you know, uh, I guess it's been about uh, maybe since, you know, really since about 2011, uh, there's been 15 different active immunotherapies that have been approved by the FDA uh, for cancers that were really intractable to existing treatments. And, and now in some cases, we're seeing that it's really leading to uh, an increase in overall survival for some patients. So I think we now have a proof of principle that uh, that no one in the medical field would, I think, any longer disagree with that your immune system can be harnessed to treat cancer. It's not working in every patient yet or in every cancer type, but we do have the proof of principle that in the right patient, it can work. And I think the goal going forward is how do we make this uh, something that could be more effective for, for all cancer patients? Well, it's wonderful. And, and you know, kudos for the, the amazing work you all are doing. And again, as someone that's been touched by this disease, like many of us, uh, you know, the, the better... And I think the more holistic the treatment can be, you know, certainly we all uh, applaud that. I do want to talk a little bit about your time. Um, and, and you and I did talk about this. 
you know, with I think the average tenure that people spend at companies these days being probably, you know, somewhere between two and four years, depending on where you sit and how much okay. experience you have. You have this amazing track record. You've been at um, CRI now for 31 years, uh, the last 25 leading the firm as a CEO um, and director of scientific affairs. You know, clearly, as you just described, it's a great organization, but What's kept you at this place for over three decades, you know, in a day that nobody does that anymore? I know. I think, I don't know. I'm a dinosaur for sure, but uh, I think what has kept me I wasn't me is, positioning is... it that way. I think it's an amazing <laughs> feat. Well, I think what has kept me here, uh, probably two things. First of all, it's people. And second of all, it's the science. Uh, I think the you know, that what has happened in three decades is almost phenomenal. And I think there's always excitement in doing new discovery and feeling that you're playing a role in helping facilitate scientists around the world to make these unbelievable discoveries that are really advancing cancer treatment. So that in and of itself, it's, it's a very rewarding place to be. But I think one thing that kept me here is every day is different. I mean, it, we're a small and very nimble organization or not exceptionally bureaucratic. Uh, it has given me the opportunity to learn so many new things and to be involved with amazing people. Uh, you know, I think not only within the staff, my board of trustees, but the scientific community, I, as a trained scientist, I think I have contributed much more to the world by being here and staying at CRI than if I had stayed in the lab doing my own research project. I think it's, you have a much broader view and your impact can be greater and you're not so narrowly focused on a single question, but you're seeing the, the larger breadth of what's going on there. I get to read proposals and pro, you know, progress reports about cutting edge research, you know, before it's publicly known or it's even, you know, published in, in scientific journals. And I've been able to, do, you know, build relationships with amazing scientists, but also amazing philanthropists and people that are willing to, to give generously to, uh, to support what was, as I said, really a hypothesis for so many years, but believe that by supporting really good people and excellent and outstanding science that progress can be made. So it's just been, uh, you know, it's been a great learning experience. Every year there's a different challenge. I've been able to create new programs. We've been able to do different things. We've been able to increase our operating budget and raise more money. So it's just been not boring. And I think that's one reason why I stay. It's, you, know, you feel like you're having impact, and plus you have a different job every day. So I think that's why well, I that's, stayed. That's certainly a, a good reason to stick around, and you're doing good at the same time. You did touch on something that um, I had as a follow-up question, and it's not unusual, especially in the medical field, where like, as a chief medical officer, for instance, uh, you, you may be a practicing you know, cardiologist or some other physician. Um, you mentioned the fact that you, know, you do have a scientific background, but as CEO, you actually have both of those in your title. I'd love to find out a little more about how much time do you spend as CEO versus Director of Scientific Affairs? And, you know, I think it's probably going to become pretty obvious, but how do those two roles complement one another? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been uh, it's an interesting thing, and I and I've been lucky to have this because I think having a scientific background as you're leading a, a not-for-profit organization where you have to raise dollars, you can come you come along as really genuine because I understand the science. I've been a scientist at the bench. I know the struggle scientists 
go through in terms of writing grants and getting financial support for their research. And so you can come across as really uh, empathetic on both sides. And you can really, when, when you're talking and trying to raise money, you can really explain passionately about what the science is and what it's doing. So I think, you know, uh, it's been, a, uh, I think, a boon for the organization that I do have this science background. Uh, gives me credibility among the scientists that we are actually help, you know, support. And it, it allows, I think, me to do a better job at raising money. So I probably spend, I would say, probably... More, 60% of more is probably, or maybe even 70%, is everything I do is science related. Uh, and the, the, the rest of it is administrative and a lot, and most of the administration being fundraising. We're not a huge organization. We have about 30 people here, so it's not like running a, you know, a mega corporation. But I'm very hands-on. Uh, you know, I'm very much of a door, you know, my door's always open policy. I like to know what everybody is doing in the organization and be aware of all the aspects of what we're doing. And um, so I, there is a part of that that's the CEO part. And obviously, fundraising is extremely important. It's the lifebread of what we do. We cannot, as an organization, survive or support research without raising money. So uh, that the fundraising part is a hard, probably the hardest part, but it's, a, it's an essential part of the job. Yeah, and, and clearly you've done something right, uh, one, to, to be in that leadership role for as long as you have and uh, the organization, you know, celebrating 65 years. Um, speaking of celebrating, you guys got some really, really great news last week, if I'm not mistaken, and that is that um, Dr. James P. Allison, who is the CRI Scientific Director, uh, was awarded the 2018 Nobel Prize, which is, you know, just saying that, it's like, oh my gosh, that's amazing, okay. along with Dr. Uh, Tezuku Hanjo, I apologize if I butchered right. that, um, what does that recognition mean for you guys? And, you know, what does this mean for the field of immunology and immuno-oncology? Yeah, so the Nobel Prize is a very big deal. And uh, I think we've been hoping and anticipating that Jim Allison, as the head of our Scientific Advisory Council, was certainly in the running for this, for his, really his breakthrough discoveries about checkpoint blockades, which is, uh, he's really opened up the entire field in, that have led to the, the current FDA approvals of, of, of many of these type of uh, checkpoint drugs. And it's, I think, true validation. Uh, you know, all of a sudden, it, it, we're not a backwater science anymore. I mean, when the Nobel Prize is given to discoveries, and also, you know, Dr. Hanjo, too, also in terms of the, the uh, another checkpoint pathway, uh, these were major game changers in, uh, in cancer treatment, and they're all based on immunological mechanisms. And I think it has just put, if it hasn't been already, by seeing all the ads you've seen on TV for, for immunotherapies, I think getting the Nobel Prize just, you know, it just makes everyone sit up and notice and say, this is the real deal. It's not a splash in the pan anymore. It's not backwater science. This is central and essential science that's changing the world. And I think we are very lucky to have Jim as the head of our, our scientific advisory council, who we rely on as really... Um, these are our talent scouts. We, you know, th these are all people that volunteer their time to the Cancer Research Institute who are already experts in the field of cancer immunology or basic immunology. And these are the people that actually review grant applications and decide and rank, you know, the, what is the best science that we should be supporting. And we also work very closely with Jim in deciding what programs from a scientific uh, nature should we should we develop? Are there unmet needs out there that CRI could have a role of supporting in a different area or a different type of grant? And, uh, you know, this is just, it's wonderful for us to be associated with Jim. And I feel extremely lucky to know him so well and work with him so closely for, you know, more than 20 years now. So it's, uh, it's, it's been, it's a wonderful thing for, for the field. 
but that's you know that is fantastic and again congratulations and that's one of those awards where um I, I can't even imagine what that must feel like so well deserved on that front i want to talk a little bit about something related you have a program called the lloyd j old star program and it focuses on scientists taking risks and you mentioned a few times the backwater medicine Today, immunology has certainly become much more of a household term, but I think to your point, 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, it was not. And without the risks that some of these uh, scientists and, and your organization are taking, um, like Dr. Allison, uh, you wouldn't get here. So can you talk a little bit about that and what does that mean, the, the Lloyd J. Old Star Program, and, and um, how did you guys come to uh, adopt this? Yeah, so this is a new program that we're just launching this year, and it's named after Lloyd J. Olds was the uh, the head of our scientific advisory council before Jim Allison, and he has been he was involved with CRI for over 40 years, and uh, he was really I had the honor and pleasure of working with Lloyd for many years, and he was really the scientific visionary that I think kept the Cancer Research Institute on the track of sticking to cancer immunology and having the you know, the, the, the guidepost of always just supporting excellent science. So we're, we're, we're really thrilled to be able to recognize Lloyd and name the program after this. And now this program came about, again, from a discussion with Jim Allison and our other associate directors of the Cancer Research Institute when we meet on an annual basis to kind of look at, you know, what is our our menu of, of programs that we have to offer and saying that there was perhaps a need uh, for mid-career scientists, that there's a lot of support out there for young scientists and starting assistant professors, but this mid-career when you're, you know, you're kind of at the end of your assistant professor or only becoming an associate professor, that this was a, become, become a tougher and tougher space to get funding. And on top of it, this is at a time that you really have proven yourself as a scientist. You know, you're no longer, uh, riding on like the wings of a mentorship when you did your postdoctoral fellowship, but you're, you're an established scientist at this point. And the thought that there was a need to give larger and sustained funding to people in this, in this uh, kind of demographic, and that we could, with CRI's track record of really picking excellent science, that we could really pick the true superstars that were going to go on to be the next Jim Allison's of the world. So um, this is what we, we proposed, and luckily uh, I was able to uh, get seed funding for this. We actually raised uh, $11.25 million from the Robertson Foundation to allow us to launch this program, which will provide uh, scientists in this mid-career, this late career setting, like $1.25 million over five years. And it's to give them, not tied to a project, it allows them the flexibility to go down new paths, take risks. It's kind of high risk, high reward science, be disruptive, think out of the box, and you know, may not all work, but I think when you support good people, and give them the tools that gives them the flexibility to not be tied to their NIH grants and having to meet certain, you know, specific aims that they proposed three years ago, but rather an open-ended funding that just do great science with this. And, and, and I, we really think major discoveries will come out of this and that these will be the really the big time leaders in the field come, you know, five or 10 years from now. Well, it just, it sounds like an amazing program. And I guess just to, Add a couple more um, uh, logs to the fire here. You also have a program called the Patient Summit Series. Uh, mm -hmm. You have an upcoming date of the 27th in San Diego and the 8th in Houston, of, uh, 8th of December. Talk a little more about this event and you know what I can gather from it. Like these are basically events for people that are patients that need help. You do them for free. 
for these people that are attending. Um, you know, how do people get involved and, you know, uh, how did this get started? And, and you know, please uh, correct me if I'm misrepresenting it all. No, no, you have it right. I mean, and this is a new, a relatively new area for the Cancer Research Institute. As I've explained so far, we're really a research-oriented or organization and always we're science-facing and scientific-facing and scientist-facing. And it was really, for many years, there were no patients that were benefiting from immunotherapy, but that has dramatically changed in the last few years. So we really thought that as our mission always was to get immunotherapies to patients, that it was really incumbent on us to really think about creating a program that was more patient-facing. And because of our pedigree in the field and for and our, you know, our scientific integrity, we thought we could be a great kind of independent, third-party, trusted source of information for patients specifically about immunotherapies. Uh, it's become more of a household word now, but immunotherapies are new, and a lot of patients never, you know, they heard of chemotherapy, they've heard of radiation, they've heard of surgery, but they don't know much about immunotherapy, and it is a different way to treat cancer. So we started this series, uh, which we've been very lucky and really had, uh, I mean, having great support. We've taken it this year to, I think, five different cities. As you mentioned, San Diego's coming up and Houston in December. And it is focused on patient and caregivers. And what we do is we really bring uh, patients together with a panel of really distinguished cancer immunologists. And we start by giving them kind of a cancer immunology 101, so they just understand what cancer immunotherapy is. And then we have these experts explain how it works and what the different types are. It's kind of a catch-all term, but there are a lot of different types of immunotherapy, and not every immunotherapy is right for every patient. Not every immunotherapy is available for every patient at this time, but you may have to go into a clinical trial. We also have sessions on what are clinical trials and trying to kind of myth-busting about that. A lot of people have a negative connotation about clinical trials and really don't understand them, so we have a session on that. And we also have a panel discussion among patients who have been treated with immunotherapy so they can speak directly to a peer about what it means to have gone through a clinical trial or to have received an immunotherapy. And, you know, we found have gotten surveys back from the patients that have come to this saying it has just been phenomenal. It has been an eye-opener to them. It's things they've never learn. They now feel more comfortable. We also, one of the aspects of this too, is we actually have patient navigators at these summits so that patients can actually speak directly with a, with a patient navigator to find out, are there, immuno, are there clinical trials in immunotherapy that might be right for them at the time? So that's another benefit that I think patients love. So we've been, uh, been very lucky. We've, we've taken this around and we've really seen that uh, we've provided great information to patients that uh, I think are are hungry to learn about what are other treatment options for them. Well, again, kudos to you. That's such a, a great service, and uh, I'll be keeping an eye on that. I guess speaking of one last event, um, and this is part of the impetus for the call, we do have the, the Cancer Research uh, Institute Awards Gala coming up the 65th. Uh, talk a little bit about that, and you know, for people that are either attending or maybe want to support, what can they expect? And Maybe how do they get more involved if they want to contribute? I know you've got some make you made it easy on your website to to donate or, or to chip in right, for anyone right. listening in. Yeah, so this is on an annual basis. Uh, one other thing CRI does is we give out scientific awards and and, and awards for, for, for lay people that are supporting cancer research. So we give out our Oliver R. Grace for Distinguished Service in Advancing Cancer Research. This year is going to uh, Perry Peltz, who is a journalist and a filmmaker, and also George Yanakopoulos, who is the founding scientist and president and chief scientific officer at Regeneron. 
And then we also give our William B. Coley Award for Distinguished Research in Basic and Tumor Immunology. And this is going to Dr. Miriam Murad from the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai here in New York, and Dr. Padmini Sharma, who's uh, the Professor and Scientific Director for the Immunotherapy Platform at, the, at MD Anderson in, in Houston. And we also give the Fred W. Alt Award for New Discoveries in Immunology, and these are to someone that was a former postdoctoral fellow that was supported by CRI that have gone on to do great things. And this is going to Dr. Boris Rezis, who's a professor at NYU School of Medicine. Uh, so it's a great place to celebrate CRI, celebrate the people that have allowed us to support great science. We are, it's a special year because it is our 65th anniversary. We also have, uh, it happened to be Jim Allison's 70th birthday this year. So prior to him getting the Nobel Prize, he, we were coming and having a special birthday bash for him, which now has kind of blown up a little bit into a Nobel Prize <laughs> celebration. And his band, the Checkpoints, were act, are actually scheduled to play at the, at the event. So I think it's going to be be a great party. It's uh, being held here in New York City at the Metropolitan Club on October 25th, which is coming up. And uh, it's just a great way to uh, support, raise money to support CRI, uh, but also to celebrate uh, the people who are doing the work and the people who are helping us raise money to allow them to do those wor the work in science. So it's a, it's, it's a great night. Well, it sounds like a great night. And uh, we're fortunate our own Jim Weiss, who's also been a guest on the show, yeah. our CEO here, is uh, involved and he is uh, he's very a co-chair of the event yeah. that's right <laughs> he's a co-chair yeah. so he he um he has been encouraging us to make sure that we're spreading the good word so um we're, we're eager to hear how that goes and like i said hopefully this podcast can spread some of that good word out there yeah. well, uh, thank you well our pleasure and so this is where we i like to get into a little more about the person and a little more about them, you know, as a person. And so I like to ask these sort of same three questions and hopefully you'll indulge me in this. And the first of which is, what is something that people don't know about you that you would be willing to share with our listeners? Oh, there's probably a lot of things that people don't know about me. Uh, let's see. Uh, one thing is I'm an extremely competitive person. I love competition and I love to win. Uh, I'm also um, an amazing baker. I love to bake and cook, and I do these. I have done for oh, basically about 30 years. I do this major black tie, champagne and dessert party where I take a week off from work and actually bake from scratch around 25 fantastic desserts that everyone comes and views, and um, we have a great party. So those are Ooh. two things I think people don't know about me. <laughs> those, those are interesting, and I actually wouldn't have expected uh, the first one in particular. The second one, I guess that doesn't surprise me as much. I will have to find a way to maybe get on that invite because it sounds really <laughs> delicious. Um, the second question is, I like to ask you know, the smart people that I have on the show if there's anything that they've listened to or read over the last year or two that they would like to share from a book perspective. Or I'm also taking podcasts now. Someone uh, reminded me that more and more people are listening to podcasts like this, and so I should make that a, an option as well. So mm -hmm. anything that you care to, to share? Well, I'm a big reader. I, uh, in New York, you do a lot of commuting. So I, I read almost a book a week commuting. Uh, but I both basically read fiction and uh, a lot of, uh, you know, bestseller lists, I'd say. I'm just finishing up a series. Of, this may not be the best bestseller, but uh, I guess there's a 20 books that have been written by an author, Elizabeth George, all about um, a, a detective in, in England uh, <laughs> that I've, well, I've read. I'm on to the 20th book, so you get very involved with the characters, and uh, so that's 
So I read a lot of that type of stuff. I always read like John Sanford, I read Michael Connolly. I mean, and I'd love to get, I really stick to authors and read almost every book they've ever written. But uh, it's kind of, uh, we used to tell Lloyd all, they used to say it was trashy novels I used to read. So I don't know if that's true or not, but it was nothing deep. It's kind of my escape as my, my time to myself and my commute where I kind of escape away. No, I like that. And I think, uh, I guess it must be a little bit difficult, sort of like watching a series on TV for, you know, seven, 10 years. And, and you do feel like you really get to know the characters. Um, <laughs> do you feel like you're coming to like this ending and maybe you're trying to hold on to this book because, you know, I don't know if she's writing more or if this is the. Yeah, the I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I guess the, I'm just going to start the one that she wrote in 2018. So this is the last that she's written, but hopefully she'll continue to write more. But I kind of went on one of these, you know, I had, hadn't read any of them, and I just read all of them from start to finish, uh, one right after another. So I'm going to be missing the characters while I wait for the next installment to be written, I think. <laughs> well, that's quite a feat, and I was just looking up online, and I think The Punishment She Deserves looks like it's the uh, last That's book the, the, that's one that the last one. <laughs> well, yeah. it sounds interesting. We'll have to uh, give that a, a try. So my last question, and then we can wrap up, is, uh, and it's the one... <laughs> sometimes guests have the hardest time with, but I like to find out uh, what type, you know, sort of how people tick. I like to ask this theoretical question that imagine you're stuck on a deserted island. You can only take one uh, album with you, ideally not a greatest hits, um, although I don't think I gave you that caveat, so I'll let you cheat if you want. Uh, which would it be and why? Yeah, this was this is the toughest question for me. I'm not a big music person. I I have I only really put the mu music on when I drive in the car. I've never really listened to music any other time, so it's a tough question. But I'll probably go back to kind of classic rock. It would probably be like Rubber Soul from the Beatles, you know, something like that. <laughs> but that's a real maybe not the best question answer for me. But only thing I can really think of because I'm not really a music person. Well, that's a great answer. And I, part of why I like to ask, because, you know, at some point in time, anybody in their life has listened to something, you know, whether it's classical, jazz, blues, Beatles, Beatles seem to come up more than not. I actually love the Beatles myself and may or may not have uh, one of their albums as my choice for the deserted island. But oh, there um, you go. Yes. Well, anyway, I have to thank you, Jill. This has been um, amazing. This is Aaron Strout, the CMO of W2 and the host of the What's No podcast show. And I've spent the last half an hour talking with Jill O'Donnell Tormey, who is the CEO and um, Director of Scientific Affairs for the Cancer Research Institute. Thank you so much for spending time with us and doing all these amazing things to, to help people uh, kick this horrible disease butt. Well, thank you very much, Aaron, for the opportunity. It's been great. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at w2ogroup.com slash what to know.